I want to preach the message number six. Those of you who heard um, at the beginning of the year, I was going to be preaching a series of messages throughout the year. Uh, you might have, in the back of your mind, I think, thought, oh no, every single Sunday. And no, that's not the case, as you have known. Uh, but we are halfway through after today on a series I entitled Contending for the Faith. That phrase is found in Jude, in the book of Jude, but uh, really all I'm doing is just taking from Jude because uh, for that one phrase and for this series title, uh, because I believe that there are certain doctrines of the Christian church that are under attack, and incidentally, they're under attack not only from those who are unbelievers or outside of of faith in Christ, but they're also attack, even under attack even within uh, the church of Jesus Christ or those who will sort of slap the label Christian on themselves and say, I'm a Christian, and yet will not adhere to sound doctrine. And I believe with all my heart that we have to know what we believe and why we believe it. Uh, at the very beginning of the year, we started out with the Word of God, understanding that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, that was the very first message, because it all starts there. If we can't depend upon what's written in the Word of God, then we cannot depend on anything else that's said. Either it's true or it's not. If it's true, you have to believe it, and you have to take the whole counsel of God. If it's not true, you got to throw it all out. But we believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. It is true. Uh, it doesn't contain the truth. It is the truth. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. But today is the sixth message in this series, Contending for the Faith. And it is a doctrine that is under attack not only by other religions but also within those who would claim to be Christian. And it is the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. Salvation by faith alone. We believe that you are saved by faith alone. There is no other means. You can't earn it. You can't somehow hope to... To make that up, and we're going to get into that in a little more detail a little later on, but there are other religions that stress the necessity of man to somehow live up to a certain standard to earn salvation. Certainly even within uh, those who would call themselves Christians, there are churches, there are entire uh, labeled Christian churches that believe that it is not only by faith, but it is also by what you do that earns your salvation. Brothers and sisters, when you look at Scripture, Scripture, if there is anything that the Scripture is clear about, I realize there are times where we come across passages that are a little difficult to understand. There are certain things that we might read that we sort of scratch our heads and say, I'm not sure I quite get that at this point. If there is anything that is absolutely crystal clear in the Bible, it is that we are saved by faith. And that is not of yourselves. It is a gift 
of God. We cannot point to anything that we can do, but instead it is this important, all-important thing of faith. It's not a set of rules. If you think that somehow you are going to, uh, you know, carry out a certain set of rules in order for God to be happy with you and save you from sin, the question I have for you is, where do the rules end? Where do you stop? Is it even possible for you to obey all the rules? Because Paul makes a case in Romans, we're going to go there in just a moment, but Paul makes a case in the book of Romans that if you break one of the Old Testament laws, you are a lawbreaker. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker, whether it's one or all 600 and some odd laws that there were under the law of Moses. So Paul is saying, essentially, you cannot earn salvation. Nothing you could do could ever impress God. Nothing you could ever do could cause God to love you more than he already does. And nothing you could ever do could ever bring forgiveness to your life. That, brothers and sisters, has been all up to him. But I want to go to the scriptures today and I want to look at three important truths about our salvation, specifically how we must view this doctrine of salvation by faith or as we could call it, justification by faith. Salvation by faith alone, we're going to look at three areas. First of all, we're going to look at why salvation is needed in the first place. There are people who are walking the face of the earth saying, I'm fine, I don't need salvation. What's the big deal? Those are the hard nuts to crack. But if you pray, give them the word of God, and believe the word of God, sooner or later the spirit of God will cause that seed to come alive in their hearts. But why is salvation needed? The second thing we're going to look at is how salvation comes to us. How does it come? And then finally we're going to look at some of the blessings of salvation or what salvation gives. So what, how, and what we're going to deal with today. The why of what it is, why is salvation needed? Why do we need it? Go to your Bibles if you would. We're going to turn over to Genesis chapter 3. I want us to go to Genesis chapter 3. I think most of us are familiar with this passage of Scripture and what it talks about, but I want us to go there and look at what took place right in the midst of paradise. The Bible says this, starting at verse 1, Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Satan is crafty. He just absolutely twisted what God had initially said. God actually did not say that. God said, there is one tree that you may not eat from. Satan just said, did God say you can't eat from any tree? So you can see how he twists things to try to make it sound as though God is being so unfair. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said 
to the woman, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. If there is ever any evidence of mercy, it is this one verse alone. Walking in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Do you see the mercy of God in this? But we see the need for salvation here, and it starts here in the Word of God. The need for salvation is simple. God had stated they could eat of any tree in the garden except one. God said you're going to live and you can live on anything that you see except for this one tree. And now they come to the place where it is the one tree that is right in front of them they are not supposed to eat from. And now the Bible lets us know they reach out, take its fruit, and they eat of it. And in that moment, sin entered the world. Disobedience to God came into their lives. They disobeyed. This is how we know that we have a free choice. We have a free will. They chose in that moment to be disobedient to God rather than to obey. And in that moment, sin and death entered the world. And it has been the way of mankind ever since. When you read from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through in the Bible, you see God's dealings with sinful man. Sin is a part of this life, and as a result, death entered in. Why we need salvation? We need salvation because mankind has disobeyed God and gone against God. The Bible lets us know in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The fact is that we are all sinful flesh. Turn over in Genesis. You're in Genesis. Go to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. We need salvation because sin and disobedience entered the heart of man. But we also need his salvation because there is something even worse. That sin and disobedience turned into a great wickedness. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Imagine that. Let me read it again. That every, the last part, that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That, brothers and sisters, is God's view. Let me be clear on this. Man will stand there and say, oh no, that's not right. Not evil all the time. You've got to give me a break on this. 
Come on, we're basic. And there is the philosophy that says mankind is generally and basically good. God says, no, he's not. Absolutely not. You are either sinful or you're not. There are, no, there are no different and varying degrees of sin. I realize that even in this country and in our, under our laws, there are varying degrees of laws. There are very, if you break a law, it depends on your past record. It depends on the motive. It depends on all the things that have taken place uh, uh, that s- surround it. There can be first-degree murder, second-degree murder, the third degree. I don't even know. I'm not a lawyer. But, the, you know, all the way down into manslaughter and, and all of these things. For God, there is, there is one thing. You're, you're evil, simple. Man is not basically good, folks. The Bible lets us know that man is basically evil. From the very get-go when sin entered the world, man didn't just stand up and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, I'm kind of okay, God. God looks at us through his eyes, not through what we think of ourselves. And, and when it all comes down to it, shouldn't we be looking through his eyes instead of our own? Listen to what Romans says, and we could probably quote this. This is a very familiar passage or verse of Scripture, Romans 3.23. We need salvation because all have sinned. When it all comes down to it, you say, well, that was the Old Testament we were talking about. All right, let's go into the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, let's see how Paul states it. And again, this is very clear. There is no... No ambiguity on this. There is no gray area. This is, it's either black or white. One or the other. It is what it is. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all means some. No. All means all. The Bible says all have sinned. You say, but you don't understand what I've been through. No, all have sinned. All have broken the laws of God. All have come against God. All are against Him. All are sinful. There isn't anybody who can say, not me. There isn't anybody in the world who can stand up and say, now God, you have no right to condemn me. And yet, this is the pervading philosophy of mankind. God doesn't have a right to tell me what to do. God has every right because he has stated through his word that all have sinned. Jonathan Edwards preached that famous, famous uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He literally read the sermon by candlelight in a little building, in a little church building where he ministered. And yet there was such great conviction as he read that sermon. Now many have tried to reproduce the effects of what Jonathan took place after Jonathan Edwards preached that great sermon. They have never been able to reproduce it because it was a God thing that took place in that moment and in that time. But as he went through, he he delineated throughout that sermon the danger that man, sinful man, is in in this very moment, at this very time when he refuses to give in to the grace of God that comes, is, is ready and available to his life and the danger that mankind is under. Why? Because all mankind has sinned. We need a savior. We need salvation for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Turn back 
uh, uh, just a couple of chapters into chapter 1, and we're going to see one final reason why we need a Savior. And it is this. Because mankind is under the wrath of God. We have a hard time, you know, it's, it's so easy for everybody. You know, the whole God is love kind of, you know, truth that we read in Scripture and we see in Scripture, that catches on to everybody. Everybody digs that. God is love. I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't love that idea? You know, you got to love the fact God is love. And, it's, and, and that, that will come across to unbelievers and believers alike. And we all jump on that. We, yes, I agree. And it's in the Scripture. It's in the Bible. Yes, God is love. But we also have to realize that God loves us so much that he has to deal with sin. He absolutely has to take care of it. You see, in addition to God being love, God is absolutely holy. God will deal with sin. We are under the wrath of God. Mankind is under the wrath of God. Look at verse 18 of chapter 1. The Bible says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, Paul is talking about a time that is coming. He's actually talking about two periods of time. The understanding is it's being revealed. That is, it's being unfolded, not in its mass power and vengeance, like what will happen in the end time, but slowly the wrath of God is being revealed, as if it were almost like a scroll being unrolled, just, just slowly being unrolled. He says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice that. They give in to more wickedness so as to push down the truth. They push it down and push it down. If I just do more stuff and get my mind in a, in a particular state where I don't have to think about anything, I don't have to deal with this truth about God, that somehow God might be angry at me. That God might be upset with me to the point where he will pour out his wrath and his anger and his judgment upon my life. Most of us say, I don't want to deal with that. Let's, let's just face it for a moment. When we witness to somebody, what do we talk about? We talk about the love of God. Most of the time, we will talk about what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Brother by the name of, uh, oh, just it escaped me. Wrote, uh, Ray Comfort. His name is Ray Comfort, wrote a book, Hell's Best Kept Secret. whole premise of his book is simply this, that when you share Christ with somebody, they have to understand where they have fallen from. That is the law. That they need to know and understand that God will judge them one day. You say, I don't want to share that with anybody. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, 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 Listen. You cannot understand the depths of the love of God until you understand what you had coming to you. You cannot understand what it is that God has done for you on the cross when you understand why the cross happened. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But mankind is under the wrath of God and so man needs salvation. 
Whether you believe it or whether you don't, the Word of God reveals this is the absolute truth. So how does salvation come to us? Salvation, first of all, before we get into the real how, we're going to get into the fact that it's possible. You say, well, how could God, a holy God, a just God, a righteous God deal with any of this? How is it that it's possible for this kind, for salvation to come? Is it even possible at all? And I think this is one of the reasons why man kind of gets in there and he muddles with the plan of God a little bit and he begins to rework it and reconfigure it so that man's got to do something to earn it. I'm here to let you know you can't earn it. There isn't anything that you can do to cause the wrath of God to disappear. There is absolutely nothing you can do to earn the wonderful salvation that we find revealed in Scripture. But you need to know that salvation can come because God loves us so completely and absolutely. And here's what he did for us. And I want to read what it is that a man by the name, a a preacher, a Scottish preacher by the name of George Herbert Morrison lived in the 1800s, died in 1928. What it was that he wrote, it's so beautiful and so wonderful. So just tune in your ears to what it was that he wrote. This is so wonderful about the cross of Jesus Christ. He says this, Let me say that the cross is not needed and included because of God's unwillingness to pardon. Nowhere in the New Testament is the cross conceived as turning an unwilling God into a willing one as a compulsion on a reluctant God. It is not the cause of love. It is its consequence. It is the spring of love. It is its outflow. And that is what is so often forgotten. We read in the New Testament of Christ being offered as a propitiation for our sins. And our thoughts go back to pagan faiths where men tried to appease their angry gods. But the tremendous difference is that in all these faiths, man had to provide the propitiation. In the Christian faith, God provides it. He does not ask for men for an atoning sacrifice. He gives the atoning sacrifice. And he gives it because he loves the world and wills not that any man should perish. It is because he so passionately is so passionately eager to forgive that God sent his son to die. Brothers and sisters, I couldn't have, I certainly could not have put it that way. That is so beautiful. God was not reluctant to forgive. God provided a method and a way of forgiveness. He didn't show up and say, now if you follow this rule and that rule and this rule, then salvation can come to you. It doesn't happen that way. You don't need to feel as though somehow God was reluctant to give it. God is the one who provided the way out from having to deal with the wrath of God. And he brought salvation to mankind. Because he loves us so very much. Salvation can come because of Christ's substitutionary death. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. What do we mean by that? That simply means that Jesus died as your substitute. You deserve to die. 
You were sentenced to death. You were sinful. You were against God. You were hostile to, toward God. And yet the Bible says, and we've already stated in Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, in the while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But listen to this wonderful verse of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our place on the cross so that now we can have the righteousness of God in our lives. It can come because Jesus paid it all. He died on the cross for our sins, so now the wrath of God has been satisfied. The requirements of the law have been fulfilled in Christ. You remember, under the law, the priests had to bring a sacrificial lamb before the Lord and offer that once a year as an atonement for all the people. There had to be blood that was spilled and shed. And yet the Bible lets us know that John the Baptist proclaimed about Jesus that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of a few. No, the sin of the whole world. He came into the world so that you and I could come to faith in him. And he came and he died so that we could be free from sin. If we will trust and we will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thy and thy whole household will be saved. Trust in the Lord and believe in him. So salvation can come because of what Jesus did for us. We'll, and you say, well, couldn't it have happened another way? It seems as though this was God's plan. So no. It's not going to happen any other way than according to God's plan. This was God's plan for mankind. It was the plan that he had for the son. At the very beginning, God prophesied to uh, Adam and Eve and to the serpent that there would be one who would come and that one would bring salvation. That one would crush the head of the serpent. The one who would deceive. The victory was not going to be the devil's. The victory was going to be God's in the end. And what we have with the cross and the empty tomb is victory now salvation can come because of the atoning blood shed for us i already mentioned the the phrase that john the baptist used he was the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world he was that atoning lamb who spilled his blood out who shed his blood listen to what the bible says i want to go over you don't need to turn there but you can write this down in Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. The Bible says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. It was important. You say Christianity is a bloody religion. Yes, it is. Absolutely. In the Old Testament, we see it in picture and in type. In the New Testament, we see it in fulfilled in Christ when he shed his blood. In fact, Paul states this. Let's go over Romans. If you happen to be close to Romans, get to Romans. 
chapter 3. And we're going to see how he is an atonement for us. The Bible says this, Romans chapter 3 and verse 25. It says, God presented him, that is Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So now in Christ, it's all heaped on him. He is the atoning sacrifice and his blood that was shed for us was that atonement. So how do we take hold of salvation? What are we supposed to do? It is simply through this. It is by faith, Paul says, in his blood. Through faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross as he spilled out that atoning perfect blood, that spotless lamb gave his life for you and for me and it is by faith, by faith alone. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. It is not by works of righteousness that any of us can ever come to salvation. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, notice this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You need to understand today that you were saved by grace through faith and it's not anything that you could have done. Well, I got to get a little bit holier. Can't be done. You gave in to sin. You gave in to the flesh. You committed something that was against God. Well, I'm, before I can go back to church, I got to get a little bit holier. Oh, please. Please. Will you come in with this whole unholy crowd can we all just join together and can we just come together and say, Lord, it's by your grace that we are made holy. It is by your blood that we're made holy. Don't wait to become a little bit holier. It's kind of like the nonsense of saying, well, let me just wash up a little bit before I get in the shower. Isn't that what the shower is for? You don't take a bath to then get out of the bath and wash your face a little more. No, no, no. It, the bath takes care of it. The blood covers it. It's not anything that you can do. It's not anything that I can do. One of the, one of the most, the things that burned in my memory from trips to Mexico that I took on missions trips. One of them, we were going by uh, one of the basilicas that's there just outside of Mexico City. And there, they, the, the marble that is out in the courtyard is literally shining. And polished not because they keep it spotless because that's somebody's job it is because people feel as though somehow if they can can be repentant enough they will get down on their knees and they'll crawl on their knees all the way across the courtyard some some hundred yards or so and they'll crawl and and they'll on their knees and all praying at the same time trying to appease God listen 
you don't have to do that. That doesn't save you. You don't have to do anything. You have to have faith and trust that what he provided on the cross was enough to save you. It is by faith alone. Not by works of righteousness. Not only that, it comes because man's means of salvation can't actually save. I know this sounds somewhat repetitive, but listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Your means of salvation can't save you. Don't invent it. Just come alongside of what God has already planned out for salvation. Don't make up your own thing and think that somehow in the end it's all going to work out and all going to be okay. No, God has already made a provision for it to work out and to be okay. The Bible says this, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became or become conscious of sin. The law was good. The law was perfect, but there wasn't anybody who could fulfill it. Instead, what we found was we're lawbreakers. In our hearts, we're lawbreakers. We are sinful. And so the law says, essentially, we became, or the law caused us to become conscious of the fact we're sinners. The question is, what do you do about it? Again, it goes back to one thing. Faith. Salvation comes by grace through faith. We've already read the scripture in Ephesians 2 and verse 8, but jump down to verse 24 in Romans chapter 3. Verse 24 says, And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I love the whole freely part. That sounds wonderful to me. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything about it or for it. You don't have to earn it. There isn't anything that you can do to become more holy. Salvation comes by grace through faith. The question is, what is grace? What is grace? Well, grace is a Greek word from which we get our word charismatic. It is charis is the original Greek word. But it originally meant beauty or beautiful conduct. Later it was used to mean any favor granted to another, especially when the recipient had not merited the favor. You know, most of us think of favors. You do something for somebody else and you might, you might do that thing and in the back of your mind you log it in. Uh, favor asked of this person on such and such a date, make a note of it, when I need a favor. And you are more willing to go back to that person and call upon them for the favor that you gave to them. You reciprocate. We didn't do God any favors, folks. And we still can't. Who can give God anything? 
Who of you has anything that you can give to him that he needs or that he desires to have? There isn't anything that we could ever show up and say, God, looky here. Lord, aren't you impressed with me? Look at this. This is wonderful, Lord. God looks at it. Oh, yeah, that's great. He doesn't need anything from us. So we didn't do anything for him, and yet he favored us. The Bible writers borrowed this word, this Greek word, grace, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, clothed it with a new and a most wonderful significance that in the New Testament, it usually meant forgiveness of sins granted entirely and totally out of the goodness of God and completely apart from anything that you could do. It is God forgiving you when you don't deserve it. It is God showing up to your life and saying, I'm going to give you my love and my forgiveness, knowing all the time you and I don't deserve his love and his forgiveness. You say, but wait a minute, we were made in the image of God. Yes, we absolutely were, but it was the image of God. Those, those individuals in the garden who, who, even though they're made in the image of God, they pointed their finger in another direction and said, that's the way we want to go. And it was away from God. Mankind has sinned against God, but God has made every possible way for salvation to come to you. Now, before we get into anything else in the end, I want us to talk about what salvation gives. What are the great blessings that we have? These are only a few. We don't have time to get into them all. But the very first thing is this that we have right standing with God. Imagine that. You are against God. You are hostile toward Him. And yet you come to Him in faith, and you believe that what Jesus Christ did on the cross in shedding His blood cleanses you from all sin. The Bible lets us know that now God has declared you to be righteous. A lot of times we talk about justification. What does it mean? And we've sort of oversimplified it by saying, well, God looks at us just as if I had never sinned. And that is, that is true. He does. He looks at us that way. But there's so much more to it than that. Justification is literally a declaration by God. It is as if it were a legal declaration that you are no longer under his punishment. God has declared you, who was unrighteous, to be righteous. How does he do that? Again, it comes back to one thing. You can't earn it. It is by faith in what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. Another blessing not only is that we have right standing with God, it is we have eternal life. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Another blessing is you're not you're going to be around a long time, folks. I realize that you know we think only in terms of this life and what's happening here, but you have eternal life through him. Not only that, turn over to Romans chapter 5 because we're going to see the final three blessings that salvation gives us in Romans chapter 5. 
The Bible says this, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through, I'm sorry, 1 and 2, actually. But the Bible says this, the very first thing that we have, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that is, God declaring you to be righteous, we have peace with God. Notice that. You have peace with God. With God, you don't have to be afraid of God any longer. You don't have to be fearful of, of who He is, what He can do. You don't have to be afraid. We read the scripture about the wrath of God being revealed. You don't have to fear that anymore. When you come to Him in faith and you receive Christ as your Savior to cleanse you of your sins, no longer are you under the judging hand of God, but now you have the blessing of having peace with God. And peace with God begins a whole new era of the peace of God. It's peace with God first. That is your relationship with him has been restored and renewed. The relationship that was damaged because of Adam and Eve and how sin entered the world. Now you have peace with him so that now in your life when you're faced with tests and trials and troubles and tribulations, the peace of God can sustain you in the hour of difficulty. So you have peace with God brings about the peace of God. But not only that, we have access to God. This is a wonderful thing. Because there are some churches that label themselves Christians where your access to God comes through a man. Can I tell you? Your access to God doesn't come through me today. It came through the man Christ Jesus. It came through him as he gave his life for you and for me. But the Bible says in verse 2... It says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. You now have access into the unmerited favor of God and into his presence. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe verses 15 and 16, right around there, that the Bible tells us that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. You and I have access into his presence today. What took place when Jesus died on the cross? Matthew's gospel records something took place in the temple that had to be absolutely fearful to anybody in the temple, especially to the high priest. And it was this. There was a thick veil, a thick curtain, very thick. Couldn't, man couldn't rip it. Man couldn't do anything to it. A very thick veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. The most holy place was where mankind could only go. The high priest could only go once a year. And that, the Bible says, not without the shedding of blood for himself. But when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew records for us that the veil in the temple in that one place was torn in two from top to bottom. It's as if God just came down in that moment when Jesus died on the cross and all of the sin was heaped upon him. He says, you're not going to be needing this veil anymore. You're not going to need this curtain anymore. And two big old arms just kind of went rip and rip that veil in two. So that mankind now has entrance into the presence of God. Listen, you don't have to go through me. All you got to do is dial him up wherever you are. You're in trouble. You have access into the wonderful unmerited grace and favor of God. 
We have access. But we have one thing more that's revealed in verse 2 of Romans 5. Actually, really two things. I'll group them together. We have joy and we have hope. The Bible says, and we rejoice. Something you didn't have before. Something that outside of Christ had to come from some kind of superficial, artificial means. Some, as, as they would say in the world, some liquid courage. Some lubrication. Some kind of method to kind of make you feel as though life doesn't sting quite as much. And pain that comes into your life, people will hit the bottle just to kind of cope and just kind of deal with it and sort of just get by. Or they'll hit some kind of drug or they'll hit a club or they hit some kind of sack somewhere. And that's going to make them feel as though somehow life is better than what other people have. And I'm here to let you know that through Christ we have joy. And Peter says it's called joy, unspeakable and full of glory. If you have not come to a place of repentance in Christ, you need to know today the superficial kind of joy you're going after is not joy. It will never give joy. It will only end in heartbreak and heartache. But through Christ, we have joy. He says we rejoice. We have something else in the hope. We have hope today. In the glory of God. The hope of the glory of God. Paul says one day we are going to see him in all of his glory. Face to face. We are going to see him and he, the Bible says that we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. I don't understand all that will take place. All I know is Paul says in Corinthians that we will all be changed. That we will be different. But yet at the same time it seems we have the same intellect. We have the same being. We are the same individuals and same persons who were set free in this life. Brothers and sisters, you and I have a wonderful hope in him. And it's not earned. It's not anything that you can get because he's going to just, you know, he's going to give it to you because you've been so good. No, he, he's, look, he's not like Santa Claus, all right? He, there are no lists with God. There are no, there are no lists that he's going to keep who see who's been naughty or nice. It's not how it works. It's by faith. It's by faith. And that's the only way it can come. There's so many other scriptures that we could read if you took the time to read. And I would encourage you to do so. Start reading in Romans. Start reading in chapter 3 and go down through to verse uh, chapter, chapter 5. And you're going to see that we are justified by faith. We've already read in Ephesians chapter 2. But start up at verse 1 in chapter 2 and read how the Gentiles that Paul was speaking to were, were originally outside of any kind of hope. But he says, now you have been brought near. Now we have been brought near, brothers and sisters, because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. I close with this. Outside the city of Kingston, Ontario, Canada, some years ago there was a man who entered the kitchen door of a home and began to accost the wife of the household just as she was preparing the evening meal. She cried out to her husband who was in the other room of the house and he immediately came rushing to her assistance, grabbing the man by the collar and thrusting him out the back door. In the morning, 
as he was going out the door, the husband found to his utter surprise the intruder lying at the bottom of the steps dead. It was never determined whether the man was killed by the force of his fall or whether he was merely stunned and then just froze to death in the cold of the winter night. The farmer, being an honest man, immediately went into town and gave himself up to the authorities. Several days later, a hearing was held. Every bit of evidence that could be accumulated was brought in and duly recorded and appointed by the clerk of the court. After every possible witness had been heard and all the records fully transcribed and considered, the judge turned to the farmer and said, in the eyes of the court, you are justified. That meant that every shred of evidence that had been taken down during the hearing had to be destroyed. You can go, and if you, anyone were to go to Kingston, Ontario today, he would not find one shred of evidence of that case. Every record is gone. When God justifies the sinner who trusts in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, all the evidence of his sin and guilt is completely wiped out. Look, folks, there are people who will show up and they'll say, I remember what you used to be. I remember what you used to do. I remember all of these things. And do you remember the time we did this? Do you remember the time we did that? But I'm here to let you know that when God forgives you and God wipes the slate clean, God doesn't show up with a log book. He doesn't show up with a record of every wrong that you ever committed. But instead, he, wa he shows up with the Lamb's book of life that has your name written in red, the blood of Jesus Christ, and says, this is what I see. I see that you are clean, you are whole, and in the eyes of this court, you are justified. Let's stand to our feet and give God praise today.